Welcome, I'm Sirius Afshar and this is the Uyghurs Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection. In this podcast, we will discuss some of the most pressing issues related to the linkages between informal economy and social protection, including debates around workers' health provision, pension schemes for older workers, as well as childcare systems and other social protection policies for informal workers in order to improve their livelihoods. And in this episode, we will explore how COVID-19 crisis affected informal workers' care responsibilities and to which extent the government responses addressed informal workers' needs in terms of income and food security throughout 2020. We conducted a longitudinal survey with informal workers in 12 cities around the world during the second and third quarters of 2020 and now the first findings are starting to be released. We have invited two guests to discuss some of the results related to social protection. Mike Rogan is an associate professor in economics and economic history in Rhodes University in South Africa and a researcher at WIGO. He co-authored a policy brief with Ana Carolina Ogando and Rachel Moussier about the impact of COVID-19 on informal workers' care responsibility, paid work and earnings. The other guest is Laura Alfers, who was also part of the survey research team. Laura is the director of the Social Protection Program at Wigo and she co-authored a paper with Gilda Ismail and Marcela Valdivia about food and cash relief policies during the pandemic. Both papers draw from the international service findings and will be the objects of today's episode. Without further ado, here's our talk with Laura Alvarez and Mike Rogan. Laura Alvarez and Mike Rogan, welcome to our podcast. Hi, thanks for having us. Thanks, Cyrus. Nice to be here. First of all, let's start with you, Mike. Uh, before we get into the nitty-gritty of the survey, can you walk us through this project? What was the survey about? Uh, where was it conducted? What were you trying to assess? Yeah, thanks. Well, last year, around April and May, we really started noticing that some of the large organizations, including the World Bank and the ILO, were highlighting that this crisis was going to be particularly harsh for informal workers which is, as most people know, are most workers in the world. And it's fairly unusual to have these types of organizations paying so much attention to the informal economy. So the message was clear that we were bracing for a, a really harsh impact on the lives of, of informal workers. So we started as a, as a research group in, in WeGo, and we realized that there was a gap in our understanding that we knew that the impact was going to be large, disastrous for informal workers, but it didn't seem that anyone was collecting information on how or on which groups of workers the impacts would be the most severe. So we, we decided to set up a, a study in, in 12 cities. Um, I don't think I could name them off the top of my head, but I could, I could certainly list them. I've got them uh, written down in many places. But there's cities that uh, cover the subcontinent, South Asia, one city in Southeast Asia, Bangkok, Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, and two in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, in the Global North, uh, New York City, street vendors, waste pickers, canners, uh, and Plevin, Bulgaria. So the idea was to have a sort of comparative, multi-country, multi-city 
sort of assessment of how different groups of informal workers were being affected. So part of it was identifying the scale or the, uh, the depth of the impact to see how it compared to what these large organizations were predicting. But it was really to provide more nuanced information on how different the livelihoods of different groups of workers were being affected. And that includes some of the, the workers and the groups of workers that, that we go typically works with domestic workers, waste pickers, street vendors, and, and home-based workers, and really trying to see how the pandemic was affecting their livelihoods to hopefully inform some of the solutions to how to protect their livelihoods and, and help them through the recovery phase. Now, Laura, in your findings, what were the main positive aspects of government responses in particular related to food and income security? Thanks, Cyrus. Well, I think the major positive thing that, that came out of the COVID-19 response is that we're finally starting to see a much stronger recognition of the need for social protection to cover informal workers. I think it became very obvious last year as the lockdown started rolling out around the world that workers without any form of social insurance or access to cash grants were really not going to be able to stay at home. It was going to undermine the entire purpose of the lockdown. So I think that really brought home the importance of ensuring that social protection is extended to this group who are often thought of as the missing middle, who fall between the cracks in social protection. And I think that really is the most positive thing that has come out. You know, many governments were extending relief measures to informal workers, and hopefully now there is an opportunity to build on that and to make sure universal social protection really is built up in the future. Now, Mike, the pandemic forced many people to stay at home while many care services were not available, which meant an increase in the care burden for families. What did the analysis of the survey results show in this regard? Were you able to assess how much more time in relation to the pre-pandemic informal workers devoted to care responsibilities? And, and have you found any difference on care responsibilities according to gender? Yeah, thanks. That's a, that's a great question. And, a, and it's, it's something that's been an issue in countries and studies done around the world. There's a certain cost when everybody's at home. More care work is, is required. So we, we worked alongside some other survey organizations to try and measure this, to see where this increased burden of care was, was landing, so to speak. So it, it was difficult with this type of research designed to, to quantify the increases, but we used a series of, of questions that were used in, in a number of studies around the world to figure out which groups of people were experiencing an increase in care. So we haven't been great at saying how much more care, but just indicating which groups have, have reported uh, spending more time on care. Uh, and, and similar to those other studies, we've broken it down into direct care and indirect types of care. So direct care refers to taking care of another person, for example, a child, an elderly person, or in the case of the pandemic, someone who's, who's become ill. And then we distinguish that from indirect care, which are all the other types of things you have to do uh, to support that direct care. So those would be increases in cleaning and cooking and other types of, of household activities. So what's striking is, and very similar to, to other studies that have looked at this, we found that a third of the women informal workers that we interviewed reported increases in direct care as a result of the pandemic, and about half of, of the women we interviewed reported an increase in indirect care since the start of the, the pandemic. And this compares to men, about a quarter of men and 44% of men reported increases in direct care and, and indirect care, respectively. 
So women reported a larger uh, increases in both direct and indirect care than men. But of course, the, the key thing here is that this comes from pre-existing larger amounts of time spent on, on both of these care for women. So on top of the burden women had before the pandemic, larger percentages of women reported increases in care as a result of the pandemic relative to men. What, what was the impact uh, of the increase in care on paid work? Yeah, and, and that's important to come right after the, the previous discussion because that was highly gendered as well. So, I mean, just a, a minor technical point. We're not necessarily measuring impact here because we don't really understand the channels in which this works. But what we're talking about here is a convergence of several things at once that we're, we're noticing are particularly gendered. So, for example, we see strong associations or correlations between the loss of work due to the pandemic, increases in care as a result of the pandemic, and then a number of negative outcomes for these same workers that have increased care and reported loss of work. And some of these these negative outcomes are lower earnings, greater reporting of coping mechanisms, which may erode assets. And particularly for women, we see a strong association between loss of work and increase in unpaid care work and greater levels of, of hunger in the household. So it's the case, not just that women reported larger increases in, in unpaid work or in, in care work, but that also that these increases were correlated with some negative things, such as hunger and, and lower earnings, and particularly a slower recovery of earnings. Uh, we were conducting the field work in the middle of 2020. So we were looking back at April as a point in time when most of the workers that we surveyed were in some sort of government lockdown. Uh, and then we were looking at their earnings uh, several months after that in the, in the middle of 2020 to, to try and get some sense of if workers' earnings had recovered following those those harsh government lockdowns. And unpaid care work and, and a loss of, of working days were all correlated um, with, a, with a number of negative outcomes that I've just described, uh, but notably more for women than, than men informal workers. Now, Laura, the amount of social benefits provided by government in response to COVID-19 is often praised as an outstanding effort. But the findings of the survey showed a different picture. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there was an important and good effort made to extend relief, often via social protection programs, to informal workers. I mean, I think the World Bank's latest count was that over 1,400 new social protection measures were initiated in response to the crisis. And a not insignificant number of those were trying to reach informal workers. And I think that's important for us to remember. But it is true that the findings of the survey, of our survey, do paint a, a much less glowing picture when you move from counting the number of new programs to actually looking at the quality of those programs. So, for example, we found that less than half of the surveyed workers in our study reported receiving relief in cities where governments announced relief measures, which was, I think, in 11 out of the 12 cities we looked at. And even where workers did receive cash or food or, or other relief, in the majority of cities, the amount of cash or food received didn't actually make a significant impact on the levels of reported food security. So although workers were receiving, were receiving cash or food, they were still experiencing hunger in their households and on, a, on a similar level to those who did not receive uh, there were some exceptions to this in two of the Indian cities, Ahmedabad and Delhi. We did see that those who received food relief had lower levels of reported food security. So that is important to note as well. 
But in general, what we saw was that the benefits weren't of a sufficiently high enough level to do what they were meant to do, which was allow informal workers to stay at home during the restrictions. And I think we, we need to remember that was the point of these relief programs. And uh, perhaps that's not surprising if we think of the amounts on offer. In Zimbabwe, for example, it was really, it was a few dollars to compensate people for staying at home. In South Africa, it depended on the type of grant we were talking about, but the, the Social Relief of Distress Grant, which was specifically aimed at informal workers, was 350 rand a month. That falls well below the 560 rand a month estimated to be, you know, the cost of a basic food basket in the country. I think, though, it's important, I mean, even though we see these shortcomings in the response, it is important not to forget that they have done something. I mean, even despite the fact that the grant fell below the food basket measure, you know, there has been research to show how important it was for keeping a number of people from falling into food poverty. And we have, in, during the survey, heard stories of, you know, informal workers using the grant money to restock their businesses to be able to carry on trading. So there have been important economic effects as well, in all likelihood. I do think, though, that, that what this means is that we, we really need to get the financing right in future. It's not only financing which plays a role. In, in how effective these programs are. But certainly without enough financing, you know, they are severely constrained in what they can do. What were the main barriers workers have faced to access relief benefits, according to the findings of the survey, Laura? Well, the main one across the whole survey, so the whole sample taken together, was lack of awareness of the benefits on offer, which I think tells you something about the importance of effective communication in the rollout of these sorts of relief measures. But to be honest, it was very difficult to look at the survey as a whole because the cities were so different and the barriers to access really did depend on the particular policy context in each city, the sector of workers we were looking at. And also the strength of the grassroots organizations in that city. So in Lima, for example, we saw many workers excluded because there were errors in the registry lists, which didn't include many, many of the people who would have otherwise been eligible for the, for the grant that was given by the government. But at the same time, we also saw that waste pickers, recicladores, were, were the most likely sector in Lima of the sectors we looked at to receive the grant. Over 60% of them reported receiving the grant. And this was because they had been specifically singled out as a vulnerable sector to be targeted. In Durban, on the other hand, we saw that waste pickers were the sector least likely to have received a cash grant, whereas over half the street and market traders had received a grant. Only 15% of waste pickers had, had done so. And their biggest barriers to access were the lack of identification and a lack of access to digital services, which I, I think also brings up quite a common barrier and one that we saw across many of the cities was this use of digital technology to deliver the relief measures, particularly the cash. And I think in some cases it really did facilitate access. So, you know, online applications, you know, receipt of the grant through mobile money or through an ATM voucher. All of it did mean that, you know, you were bypassing long queues at offices potentially. But it really can be a double-edged sword, particularly for very vulnerable groups of workers like the waste pickers in South Africa who don't have access to telephones, who don't have access to cell phones, um, who don't have access to the internet. And, you know, that sets up a real barrier for those workers in terms of getting access to the grant. So ensuring that manual options are on offer, I think, is an important consideration. And I mean, in South Africa, ultimately, I think there were some manual options operationalized after the hardest lockdown. But it wasn't optimal that it, 
that the application process originally was entirely online. Now, Mike, during the pandemic, households' income were severely hit, but then there was a second moment there was a recovery. How did this recovery speed of earnings and care responsibilities vary according to gender? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I, I would just take a step back and point out that it, it's not surprising at all that some of the cash transfer mechanisms that Loris just described didn't meet basic needs. So for example, in April, when the most countries and cities were under lockdown, we found that 80% of earnings were lost. So that's that's closely in line with, with some of the worst projections at the, at the beginning of the crisis. But just to emphasize that the loss of earnings was severe. And it's it's important to remember that these are workers that before the pandemic, often many of them lived below their country's national poverty line. So household budgets were very tight well before the pandemic. Households of, of these workers barely meeting their, their basic needs. So a loss of 80% is, is nothing short of catastrophic. Recovery is a bit of a funny word. When we designed this survey and we implemented it in the middle of 2020, we were, of course, starting to talk about recovery because it was after the lockdown period and after the first wave of the pandemic. But of course, since then, in most of the global South, at the end of 2020, there was a second wave of the pandemic. And in many countries, including South Africa, where, where I'm living, that meant another government shutdown. And we don't quite know what or when recovery, what it means or when it'll happen. But to the extent that we could consider uh, the middle of 2020 some sort of partial recovery in the sense that it was after the, the lockdown and after the first wave, we found that still 45% of earnings were, were missing compared to what workers were earning before the pandemic. So again, really important to remember that these are workers that were earning just around the poverty line, if not a bit below, in some cases a bit above. So a loss of 45% of earnings during some type of recovery period is still a great concern. And then we also found a link between increases in care work in the middle of 2020 and, and a slower recovery for earnings. So earnings in mid-year were still much at much lower levels for workers who also reported an, an increase in care work. And this was particularly the case for women. It went right across the sectors of work, domestic workers, street vendors, home-based workers, and, and waste pickers. Women in all of these categories reported a, a much slower recovery if they were also indicating that they had increases in, in care work to which they were devoting some of their time. Can you tell us about the impact of pandemic on informal workers on their earnings? Yeah, I suppose one other thing I'd add is that as the pandemic has progressed, the reasons for, for lower earnings have changed a bit. Obviously, when we first went to the field, the main thing was that many workers had recently been locked down, not able to leave their homes. So, of course, the main reason for lower earnings was that they weren't allowed to access the public spaces. Most of the economy had shut down. But by mid-2020, we found that some of the main reasons for uh, lower earnings was that supply chains had not recovered, demand had not recovered. Even if workers were allowed out of their houses or even in some cases allowed access to the markets and public spaces where they'd worked before, the reasons for the, for the lower earnings were, were shifting towards a poor economic recovery overall. And when supply chains get squeezed, it's those at the bottom or the, the lower earning end of those supply chains, the most vulnerable parts that end up taking the longest to recover. And that's that seems to be where we found the, most of the respondents in the middle of 2020 was their markets had not recovered sufficiently, uh, which explains why they were earning roughly half of what they were before COVID. But uh, we'll be going into the field again in, in June of this year, 2021. 
with an aim to try and figure out the rest of the story, what's happened over the, the 18 months since we first started experiencing this pandemic and how earnings have or haven't recovered for various groups of workers. Now, Laura, one interesting aspect in the survey is that you have found that grassroots organizations played a, an important role in providing access to relief for informal workers. Can you tell us more about what kind of role did they play? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably important to point out that informal worker organizations have played multiple different roles in the relief response from participating in consultation and dialogue to ensure that relief efforts actually did reach or attempt to reach informal workers, to assistance with selection and identification of, of recipients. So we saw that in Sierra Leone, for example, lists from government and trader associations were used uh, as a second step in actually identifying beneficiaries. And in several countries, we saw informal workers actually playing a, a very integral role in the response. And then, I mean, we also often see grassroots organizations providing essential services to their members that amplify the impact of the social protection measures. And I think we saw that in Kerala and India, as well as in other countries. I think from our survey, the one sort of role of grassroots organizations that really stood out was this providing of last mile support. So really ensuring the connection between the benefits and the beneficiaries and really working hard to establish more effective connections between their constituencies and the state benefits on offer and facilitating access. So, I mean, one of the first examples we saw was in Thailand, where the state announced a benefit for informal workers, but the application process was online. Um, and many of HomeNet Thailand's members are sort of older, older workers who struggle to use online technology and the organization really worked to ensure that they were able to make their applications and assisted their members with online registration. We also saw organizations of informal workers raising awareness if there were food benefits on offer. We heard of this in Rwanda as well. You know, uh, calling their members and telling them that the benefits were on offer and to make sure that they were able to get the benefit when it was available. Also in India, organizations working with their members to overcome some of the myriad of documentation barriers that, are, that were put up in the relief measures. So, I mean, I think organizations can play a big role. I think that this last mile was what we really saw as critical piece in, in our survey of ensuring that those benefits actually reached down to the people they were intended to reach. Were there any policies to support these organizations? What? governments could have done or still can do to increase the outreach and impact of these grassroots initiatives? So, I mean, I would say that there are at least two things that could be done by governments. So we spoke about the policy context as being important to whether and how social protection came out to informal workers and, you know, what the existing social protection infrastructure was like. But I think this thing of what connections there are between the state and grassroots organizations that already exist, because often these relationships are built on trust, right? And it takes years to build up that trust. But if you have it, then it can be a really effective way of mobilizing relief efforts across the state and society. So, I mean, one thing to do would be to institutionalize spaces for consultation, engagement and dialogue. So, you know, it's not an ad hoc thing that the government is consulting with say, grassroots organizations of informal workers, but there's a regular forum for engagement between the state and grassroots organizations about what is needed. And I mean, that's a critical to building up that trust I was talking about. 
And then something that I don't get think gets thought about enough is actually budgeting to support last mile service support into social protection programs. You know, there is a debate about with this last mile support, is the state not just offloading its responsibility onto grassroots organizations? I think that's a very valid point. I think it is complicated by the fact that grassroots organizations are often much better at reaching the grassroots than the state is. So, I mean, I think that there might be arrangements where you, if budgeting for that last mile support is included in state social protection programs, that might be one way of ensuring that that work done by grassroots organizations is not necessarily unpaid work, that it is, you know, that there are state resources going to support this work and seeing it as vital to the rollout of social protection benefits. Thank you, Laura. Now, Mike, we are approaching the end of our talk. Uh, so can you tell us what were the main lessons you take from this analysis of the survey results regarding care? Um, you know, I, I think it's an important moment to reflect on that as well. When, when I think about the past year or past year and a half, it occurs to me that when we when we talk about uh, work and, and the COVID crisis, we say things like furlough schemes, we think of unemployment insurance benefits, or we think of work at home contingency plans. And those are sort of three things that really uh, don't apply to informal workers. So I think it's important to acknowledge that the, the sort of main ways we have of supporting workers through a crisis like this doesn't apply to the vast majority of, of the world's workers. These workers have really been left to fend for themselves, with the exception of um, emergency food and cash relief programs and, and some of the grassroots and measures taken uh, by organiza workers' organizations themselves that, that Laura has described. But a lot of workers fell right through the cracks here. And without the daily earnings on which they survive, were really put into difficulties that I think will take years uh, to recover from. And a part of that was certainly care. Many workers were literally forced to choose between earning enough money to put food on the table and caring for elderly children and people affected directly by the virus. So I think it I think the lessons we take are that we have to think about uh, supporting informal workers in particular differently. Certainly things that we were asking for or drawing attention to before the crisis, for example, um, different forms of public childcare, are now suddenly in the, in the spotlight. So I think it's important to, to build momentum off of this, this moment in history where our systems for protecting workers were caught so short, particularly given that many of the mechanisms such as furlough schemes and unemployment benefits are really only linked with a, mi a minority of workers in the world. So I, I think it might be quite context-specific in the sense that public childcare uh, programs might be the best solution in some contexts. Others, um, various types of social protection, depending on what's existed before, might be more appropriate. But certainly this moment in time and this uh, the unique features of this crisis have taught us that our current systems, both social protection, labor markets, economic policies, are geared towards the minority, not the majority of, of workers. Uh, and unless we strengthen those systems, we remain vulnerable to another setback like this. And, and of course, I think there's a worry that the damage done in 2020 and the first months of this current year will be long lasting. And it will take uh, informal workers, many of whom have dug uh, deep into their savings, resources, networks, uh, sold assets, will take them many years to recover from the, the setbacks they've experienced in 2020. So if we can design systems that, uh, that don't leave the majority of workers out, um, 
I, I think the global economy um, will be in a stronger position to recover from these types of setbacks uh, in the future. Now to wrap up, Laura, what other policies recommendations would you make drawing from the findings and learnings from the survey analysis? I would echo Mike's broader sentiment. It's clear that the systems and policies and programs that we have in place at the moment just weren't sufficient to reach informal workers and they weren't designed for it. And this is an argument we've been making for over 20 years, but perhaps now its moment has come. I think with social protection in particular, um, the financing question is, is obviously key. You know, enabling a more robust government response to crisis should be a key concern with future policy and programming so that the adequacy of the relief measures is improved. I think we also have to, to look more closely at the way social protections have been set up with informal workers falling through the middle. I think we also have to accept that there are going to be different ways to extend social protection to informal workers. In some countries, it maybe is going to be appropriate to expand through the social assistance system and ensuring that the social assistance system is flexible enough to deal with the impact of huge shocks like this. I think it's also important, though, to not lose sight of the sort of longer term systems that can be leveraged to, to provide coverage to informal workers and particularly the contributory end of, of the social protection system. Many governments in Africa, for example, this is the way they are prioritizing the extension of social protection to informal workers. And I think there is an important piece of work still to be done really about conceptualizing what an inclusive contributory system for informal workers looks like as well. And then, not, of course, not to forget the important role that public services play, such as health and childcare, in, in protecting incomes. Too often we, we think of these as sort of social services that are delinked from the economy, but they're absolutely critical, as, as Mike has, has emphasized in his discussions around care, um, absolutely critical to ensuring and protecting women's incomes in the informal economy. Perfect. Laura Alfers and Mike Rogan, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. And if you want to learn more about the COVID-19 crisis and the informal economy study, please check Wigo's website where you can find all the policy insights, publications, fact sheets, blogs, and events and webinars that disseminate the survey findings. The direct link to the page is on the description of the episode. We will also leave links to Mike's paper on Care Button and Laura's paper on the assessment of relief policies. And please don't forget to follow Wego in social media, Twitter and Facebook, to get the latest updates about our research, including the international survey on the COVID-19 crisis and informal economy. I am Sirius Afshar, and this was the Wego's Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection. See you next time.